welcome adventurer to the Level Up Board Game Podcast, a show that uses your experiences and opinions to discuss board games and the gaming community. Join the heroes as they conquer perils such as meeples, cards, and miniatures, all in an effort to level up. You're listening to the Level Up Board Game Podcast. Welcome, adventurers, to episode 30. Scott, that feels good. It feels scary. I mean, you stop and think about it. People think now we might know what we're doing. No, I don't think anybody thinks we know what we're doing. It's episode 30, and it is a level back episode. What does that mean? The games that we're going to talk about today predominantly are games that are at least five or six years old and sometimes much, much older than that. But we've got a chock-full episode. We're going to talk about the recent plays. We're going to review Viticulture. We have a new segment. The segment with Andrew, with Archmage Andrew, has gone over so well that we're adding one more similar to that. We're going to have a visit with Josh. He's doing the Lost Loot segment that's going to talk about games outside of the top 1,000. So things are rolling on along here, Scott. I'm so happy that we have them along with us. It's fun to get games that aren't really in the zeitgeist of everyone right now. Like, it's fun to get other people's views and get other games that people might not know of or have forgotten about. Yeah, so many times you listen to shows and everything that they have to talk about is in the hotness. And I appreciate that. I like that. But we've always had this thing about we want to be in your rotation because we're not necessarily going to do the hotness. We have some we have some new stuff. We just did uh, go back and listen to our side quests from last week. We did quests and cannons with Eric and Shannon Geller. That was mm-hmm. a lot of fun. Their game's on Kickstarter live right now. Yes, yes. It was a great couple to talk to. Great game to play. Really anxious to see how well it, it does. Scott, your Renaissance Festival is a bad influence. Oh, oh. <laughs> please uh, elaborate. The county that we live in has these nice rolling hills, and the joust field at the Renaissance Festival sits right at the bottom of this big hill. So it's like a perfect natural amphitheater for people to watch what's going on. And they have these rabble-rousers, these, these people in the front of where the joust is occurring, and they're trying to get one side of the hill cheering for one night and the other side of the hill cheering for the other. It's, it's a lot of fun. They're, really, they're like cheerleaders. They get the crowd moving, but there's only one for each side. They're, they, they're captivating. Love it. Sarah loved it, too. Oh. So here's my six-year-old daughter. They're they're talking about, you know, the one knight takes the other one off the horse and they say, you know, oh, you won the joust. You know, what's what's your choice for the next battle? And he's like, I wanna I wanna fight to the death. So our rabble rouser guy's like, to the death, to the death. So here's our side of the hill chanting to the death. And I look over and there's my six-year-old little girl going, To the death, to the death. And it's like, okay, this uh whew. <laughs> if your kids understand the jokes. It's not our fault. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Do you see Outer Rim is getting an expansion? Finally. I know. I was I was scared that Outer Rim was going to fall into Fantasy Flight's black hole of forgotten games. One and done, um, yeah. And I'm thrilled. I mean, I'm anxious to see what they're going to do, if it's going to be like a, a smaller inner ring or if they're just going to make it one big circle. It's going to be interesting to see what they do with it. And on the front, I love that they have Dengar and Prince Zizor from um, Bless Shadows of the Empire <laughs> on there. So that's going to be a lot of fun uh, adding them in. I'm thrilled to play it. And it, it just got me going that I want to get back out and play it again here soon. Dude, I just want more cards. We played a game 
Jeez, you, you realize, Scott, that was a year ago that you were showing the lobsters what? and I how to play. That was al- well, almost. It was probably November. I have to look at the one Facebook thing that I wow. used for game day where I post the pictures. I bet you that was a year ago. I've played my copy since, and I'm telling you what, you play a game and there are a couple of those card stacks. You're going to go through the entire thing and have to reshuffle. And mm-hmm. It's like, man, I love discovery in a game, and Outer Rim has it. More cards, hmm, more fun. Oh, I love yeah, the idea definitely. Definitely. I think that's a a great addition that they could put into this game. Well, hey, before we get on with our recent plays, it's a level back episode and that requires additional funding. So let's take a quick commercial break. Super Chop G.I. Joe General, a huge mobile battle fortress with working lights and electronic battlefield sounds. The general has a giant cannon that really fires. Fire! With lights, action, and electronic battlefield sounds, nothing beats the general. A real American hero! General has lights, six electronic sounds, a battle copter, and major storm. Oh, the fantastic things that we could make with plastics. (laughs) That G.I. Joe general, amazing stuff. Why they didn't defeat Cobra quicker, I can never understand. You were the king of the kids if you had that thing. It had the giant orange missile that could fire at anything. Oh, G.I. Joe General. That's uh, (laughs) Glad to have them on as a sponsor, G.I. Joe. (laughs) Uh, Yes, yes, definitely. I mean, there's a lot of paperwork. Our people talking to their people. (laughs) Let's do some recent plays, Scott. You do it. Okay, we'll keep it simple. And you know what? I think that this is one that you and I have both played. This is a game called Guillotine. This is from 1998, designed by Paul Peterson. My first interaction with Guillotine was flipping through an InQuest magazine. Do you remember InQuest? I loved InQuest. Um, really? Oh, I didn't think you'd you would have been an InQuest person because oh, it was yeah. a big Magic the Gathering thing. I know you played a bit, but... Uh, well, it was, but then they started branching out and showing other games. One of them I loved was they had the Battletech card game on the cover of it. That was just fabulous. I absolutely loved it. Well, you throw in anything miniatures and you're like, oh. Well, yeah. (laughs) So what is guillotine? This takes place during the French Revolution where the commoners are taking out the nobles via the guillotine. So how do we play the game? You have this giant deck of nobles. These are the... Good guys? Bad guys? Well, I guess in this case, they're the bad guys, huh? Yeah. Okay, so your goal is to behead them. (laughs) Guillotine them. You're (laughs) guillotining these people. There's an action deck and a deck filled with these nobles. So the deck with the nobles is kind of like the community deck. At the start of the game, you're going to take this little cardboard setup guillotine. It actually comes in the box. You just put it together. It's like a, almost like a pop-up book, a guillotine. You set it mm-hmm. at one end of the table and then you flip cards from the noble deck, 12 of them, into a row from nearest to the guillotine all the way too farthest away from the guillotine. Then you have the action deck that's going to give you a handful of cards to work with. Now these nobles in the middle, they all have varying numbers on them. So like the priest might be worth two points, whereas Marie Antoinette is worth five because that's that head's more valuable well, yeah. to, <laughs> to collect, right? So how does it work? On my turn, I have the opportunity to play an action card. And then at the end of the turn, I'm going to take the noble that is in the front of the line. The gameplay is remarkably simple. Most of the action cards 
they're going to give you the opportunity to switch the order of nobles. So if I have a noble in the front that is two points, I might use a card that'll bump it back three spaces in line. Thus, I collect the second one. I might have a card that'll move something forward. I, you know, ways of basically manipulating this row of cards. Some of the nobles have little abilities on them. Like if you collect this, you get to draw an extra card. Some of the nobles, they're, what is the soldier? There's Help me out here, Scott. There's that soldier that he's worth a point for every one of them that yes, you have. Yes, yes. Uh-huh. Okay, yeah, so you have like another an one exponential here. gain with him. There's one where if you get uh, the count and then you get the countess, you get two extra points for each of them. Exactly. So there's reason to take some, you know, some of these cards that might not be worth as many points. Furthermore, they have some negative point ones. You don't want to kill the hero of the people. <laughs> You're a <No>. bad executioner. <laughs> that was not the plan. But you can try and manipulate the line so that the next person has to. Boy, I tell you what, Scott, for about a 10 minute game with very, very low skill level, a low barrier of entry. This is a lot of fun. It is a lot of fun. One of the things that I know my wife talks about whenever we play this game, it kind of has a spatial relations type of thing because you have to picture where the people are that you want to, God, whenever I say this out loud, it sounds horrible. Whenever <laughs> You want the people in a certain place for you to kill them. So you have to plan where they're going to be and move them back and forth and keep track of what turns are going so there is a, a little bit of strategy to it and a little bit of planning. So it, it's definitely um, a fun game. There's a little more depth to it than just playing a card and killing somebody. So after day one, after all 12 of the nobles in that line have been beheaded, you set up day two where a new 12 come out and play continues. And finally, day three, which at the end of day three, everybody's going to tally up the points in front of them. And whoever has collected the most points amongst the nobles that they've collected is the winner. Simple, simple game. This I think of this as like the classic filler for me. When I was getting into board gaming, this was the one that like, okay, we have another 15 minutes. We have another 20 minutes. Eh, let's break out guillotine. It's never like, oh, that was so strategic. That was so deep. But it, it never misses the mark either. It does exactly what I want it to do. I think at this point, it's probably been replaced by better fillers. But I keep it in that box. I have that big... Okay, Scott, have you seen the wine box? Uh, no. Oh my goodness. Okay. So at one point my collection was starting to get big enough that a game like guillotine, it's got, it's got a small box, but considering mm -hmm. that it's basically a deck of cards, like, well, this box is kind of big. Machi Koro has a box that's five times the size that it needs to be. I took all those games and I ordered a wine box. So this is a wooden box with a slide off lid and it's got two like dividers in it so okay. that it can hold three bottles of wine. I cut a piece of Luan panel and I put it in there like amongst those two dividers so that I had oh, something wow. like 15 compartments. Yes, yes. And guillotine lives in there now. So if I'm going somewhere that there's going to be like if we have a meetup, that box is always with me. I just slide off the top and there's Machi Koro. There's Welcome to the Dungeon, the Great Talmudi, and there's guillotine. It's with me anytime I'm going somewhere new because it's a, it's a fun, simple game that's easy to introduce to just about anyone. Like you, that was one of the first ones whenever I got into playing games that I got to play. And there's never a time that you're not looking at it and laughing about who's going to be killing who. I mean, the artwork is beautiful. I love the artwork. Like cartoony? Yeah, a little cartoon. cartoony, but still you can almost hear the way they would talk, the way that they're drawn. You got to love any game. They where do they look kind of pompous. Oh, yeah. Any game where you have a card that is a piss boy 
<laughs> you, you gotta love it. We, we always make it an issue to have my older brother collect the piss boy. I, I don't know why. Mike thinks it's hilarious. So anytime, I swear he wants to break out guillotine, not because he wants to play it. It's because he wants to see if we can stick Steve with the piss boy. <laughs> <laughs> what have you had to the table, Scott? Well, I went back to an older game, and this one is a bit older than the one you had. Dungeon. Well, wait, let me do this correctly. Dungeon! Because Dungeon. they have an exclamation point at the end of it. This was designed by Chris Dupuy, Michael Gray, Gary Gygax, Larry Kessling, all the fun guys from TSR way back in the day. It's a very, very simple game. You have a dungeon that you're in. There are, I believe there's six different levels that you can go into. You move your character around. You can move three spaces. You go into a room. You flip a card and see what you're going to be facing. So it's you move, you see what you're facing, or you fight it. Mm-hmm. The whole idea here is you want to kill things and get their treasure. Each one of the classes that you have, there's a, a, a fighter, a wizard, a thief, and a cleric. And each one has a different level of money that you need to get to to achieve the winning conditions. Mm-hmm. So you'll go around, you'll do anything from fighting goblins to black pudding. That one hung us up black the last pudding. time we played that. Oh, I know, I know. A gelatinous cube, all the way up to a red dragon. Each one of these has little numbers on the cards where they have like how much you need to roll for each class of character. You roll the die. If you beat it, you beat the monster. If you didn't, you take a hit. It's a very simple game. It's a fun way to get into gaming, but the only thing that I get turned off with this a little bit, it kind of overstays its welcome a little too much. How long does the game take? Uh, the game we played, we played with, uh, what was it, five people, five or six people, I think it was. And the game took probably about an hour and a half or so. Oh, and an hour and a half just... isn't terrible for a game, but this sounds like a game that's uh, very luck-based. You don't have a whole lot of agency over what happens. Well, you you can follow and see what's in certain rooms. Once someone goes into a room and they see what the monster is, if they don't kill it, well, they can leave. But the problem is collecting the money, and you might have to run all over this board. And with the number of people we had, it really just slogged down. It really became more of like... Let's just finish this game. Please, let's just finish it. (laughs) And for the type of game it is, it should be a fun, quick game. But yeah, like I said, it just overstayed its welcome a little too long. Not saying that it's a bad game. It's a fun little game to play, but you have to play it with the right people. It sounds like this might be a a relic of its time, something that mechanics have come a long way since and Mm -hmm. immersion. And is is there player elimination in this? Yes and no. Whenever you're eliminated, you can get another character. There, You can play up to eight people, so there are eight different characters that you can play. So there's plenty of things you can do with that. And this is, like you said, it's a, a victim of its time, because this came out in 1975. So it's a, a bit of an older one there, right at the beginning of the Dungeons & Dragons craze. It's a good game, but yeah, there are better games that's explore the type of game that this is. Well, maybe a a really good way to sum it up would be this. If you have two hours to play a game and you've got a group of four gamers, is this ever coming off of your shelf? 
in place of other games? Probably not. Okay. But you would play it if somebody else Oh, if someone brought it up, yeah, I would definitely play it. I mean, it's it's fun. It's very simple. You get the feeling that you're going through a dungeon, but there are other ones that do a better job of what this does. Now, this has been updated over the years. This was originally 75, but you can find it in Barnes & Noble today. Do you have the old version? Do you have a newer version? I have the newest version that they have. What are the components like? uh, They are very simple, very small cards. Things aren't really that well done. The standees are just cardboard standees. The person who I played their game... They had upgraded them and got the WizKids D&D figures and put them in there for each one of the characters. As opposed to the standees, sure. So you can definitely update this thing and get little figures to put in for the monsters and all that kind of stuff. That'll make it fun. Yeah, you know what customizes a good way to put it? I'm seeing on BoardGameGeek there are under the files. If you look up Dungeon, you can go to files and you can find a whole bunch of ways that people have implemented their own rules and come up with different ideas and sort of customize the game to make it a little bit deeper. If mm-hmm. if uh, if you're the type that's willing to put that kind of effort into making a, we'll say, a luck-based game more strategic. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Well, that's Dungeon from 1975. Quite the level back. Very good, Scott. Now, I know you had to play another game here. What what else came here? Oh, we got a couple more. This one we actually did get the chance to play together, and it's from 1992 from the makers of Hero Quest. Battle Masters. Oh, This is the game with the giant, like, four and a half by six foot terrain map. It's a hex map, and you have these huge armies, each on their own little stand, and you're putting the pieces in, and and you go fight. You said that uh, this reminded you of of a game that you played back then. The pieces were really similar, and I didn't even get the reference. It was the old Warhammer Fantasy Battles. And it was, I mean, Battle Masters. This is like the entry drug to that, easily. (laughs) So many of those figures were early GW models. You had Empire models, Orc models, you had Chaos models, and everything were, I mean, dead-on GW models. I can't put it any other way. This is the entry drug to Warhammer. So how do we play a game of Battle Masters? We had the chance to play one-on-one. You took the bad guys, the Chaos Army, and I took the goodies. I had the Imperial. So when you set up, you take each of your little, what would you call it, a, a tray? Each, yes. Like, like so, so one unit is three horses on, like slotted into a tray, and they have their own flag, really colorful. You take each of those and you put it along your border, like your side of the playmat. So I had my army lined up. You had yours. The terrain is a little unexciting. They give you... They give you like these little entrenchments that don't do a whole lot for gameplay, but they give you the tower, this assembled giant plastic tower that you can actually pick up a tray of units and put them on top to give them a little attack bonus and a defense bonus. So it it tends to become a centralized location. There's a river running down that map Mm -hmm. too, and you can add an extra fjord going over the river to cross. So, you know, for an entry level game, it actually had a lot going on. I mean, this has a great appearance on the table. This really puts you into an enormous battle. It reminds you of the old World War II movies where you see them pushing the submarines and the different markers around the European <laughs> maps and everything. You could use one of those battle staves, one of those pushers, yep. and like push the unit along. Absolutely. 
The armies between the good guys and the bad guys, they're remarkably similar. There's not a whole lot of difference. The good guys, their cavalry is a little bit stronger than the bad guys' wolf riders, for example. But the biggest difference between the two armies, you had the ogre champion and I had the mighty cannon. The way you play the game, there's a central deck of cards from which players one at a time will flip the top card and that activates that unit. So even though I'm the good guys, if I flip the top card and it's a bad guy's unit, say the beastmen, you get to activate your beastmen. We did a little bit of a different thing. We mm-hmm. each kept a hand of two. And at the start of our turn, we would draw one and then opt to play one from our hand. So if I'm the good guys and I'm holding two bad guy army cards, I can draw one and maybe get a good guy thing that way. Sometimes you're up against it and you're just holding three bad guy cards. You've got to play to let your opponent activate, but there's still a little bit more strategy because it's like, well, his beastmen are way back there in the corner. I'll just, I'll use this card now. So we were able to get a little bit more strategy than what the original gameplay would ask for. You're taking turns activating these units, and they're getting closer and closer to each other until eventually you attack. Every unit has its own little value, a number on the front of it, and that's how many dice you roll for attacking or defending. Really simple. The dice have little skulls for hits. They have a couple blanks on them, and then they have shields for defense. So, Scott, if you're attacking me, you roll four dice with four skulls, and I'm defending. I roll three dice, and I have two shields. Well, I take two hits. I put two little markers on my guy, and as long as their dice allocation in this case, three, is higher than the amount of damage, they're still living, so they can fight on for another day. Mm-hmm. I had a lot of fun with Battle Masters. You know, this this was a throwback. My brothers had this knack for when they want to play an old game, they basically pressure me into buying it. Like, I'm the one that buys all the games and I teach all the games, but whenever they want to play something, they'll never actually go out and buy it they're like hey pat they're big one right now they want to learn how to play a vhs clue there was an old version of clue that had a vhs tape i had that yeah they want me to get that and and do that (laughs) (laughs) i I can still remember the music it was really like baroque or anyway battle masters was a ton of fun very thematic game i even put a post up on facebook and I, i said you know what this game is not good by today's standards. It's very random. It's just flip a card, move the thing and whatever, and then roll a whole bunch of dice. It's it's the definition of a Ameritrash, but I still love it. What's your game that you can admit by today's standards isn't really good, but because of nostalgia, you get it back to the table. And I got some excellent responses. Obviously, a lot of hero quests. Some people brought up Stratego, Risk, uh, Buck Rogers came up. And I thought, mm. oh, man, there's, they're, they're <laughs> breaking out the big guts here with some of those old Ameritrash games. Do you have a good time with this? Oh, yeah. I mean, this took me back. Some people will know this term, but this took me back to the land of the square bases. Warhammer Fantasy Battles. Everything was on a square base. You put them on trays. You moved everything around in regiments. Then they went on to this Age of Sigmar where everything has round bases. So there was always a fight between the square basers and the round basers in uh, Games Workshop games. But Mm -hmm. this took me right back to my years of building up my huge Bretonian army. The hours we would spend playing on Sunday afternoons. I mean, it was was a great time to, to revisit this game. We even enjoyed ourselves a cinematic moment as, I mean, many, but the big one was the mighty cannon. And I love the mighty cannon in this game. The way that it works is you have a whole bunch of circular tiles. Well, I'm going to say seven of them just represent the cannonball moving. 
Well, three of them. We'll say three of them represent an explosion. So if your unit is four spaces away from the cannon, and I'm activating the cannon, I can move it, or I can shoot it. And when I shoot it, I'm going to put one of these tiles face down on each hex leading up to your unit, and I'll place one of those tiles on your unit. Then one at a time, I'll flip the first one. Cannonball's flying. Flip the second one. Oh, man, there's the explosion. The cannonball didn't make it. it. It only went two hexes. But ideally, you want it to make it all the way to that unit without exploding. And if it does, you don't just damage the unit. You outright kill it. Mm -hmm. The catch is, if the very first tile that you flip, the one that's adjacent to your cannon, is an explosion, you had a backfire, and the cannon is removed. Man, I got to fire that thing twice in the second time. <laughs> The second time was the backfire. You have like a one in seven chance or something absurd. Go figure. It backfired and, and my cannon was demolished almost immediately. Oh, yeah. I mean, with my Bretonian army with Warhammer, we had a trebuchet and it was great. I, I mean, that thing would scare people whenever they saw that on the on the table. You have a die. You would roll the die and that exclamation point comes up. You're done. The number of times I would get that thing out, roll it, first turn, boom, done, out. Well, that was our revisiting of Battlemasters 1992. This was Milton Bradley, presumably licensed by Games Workshop. A lot of fun that was. That was a great time. But hey, once again, we got to pay the bills here. Let me do my best TV voice, and we'll be right back after these messages. Hey, get that back! Mouse trouble? Then you need mouse trap. Mouse trap? I guarantee it's the craziest trap you'll ever see. The first to capture everyone else's mouse is the winner. Just turn the crank and snap the blank and boot the marble right down the chute. Now watch it roll and hit the pole and knock the ball in the rubber up top, which puts the man into the pan. The trap is set. Here comes the man. Ouch! Mouse trap? I guarantee it's the craziest trap you'll ever see. I knew you were a winner. Mouse trap from Milton Bradley. Boy, speaking of games that you play for nostalgia purposes that aren't actually good, <laughs> just, boy, I hope our sponsor is not listening. I was one of the people that I just love putting Mousetrap together, not really playing the game. I don't know if I actually ever played the game. It was always just putting I, the thing together and setting it off. I didn't even have Mousetrap. I had a friend that had it, and I'm sure we spent an afternoon just putting it together, setting it up. I'm guessing it's just a roll and move game. Yeah, yeah, uh, you have little mice that you move around. But the whole thing that I loved was building the thing. And that little diver, that diver was awesome. Yeah, you got to flip the man into the pan. Mm -hmm. Well, you just heard the song. Yeah. If you don't remember, just go back one minute and listen to it again. <laughs> Scott, we've got a review today. We're going to level back and have a look at Viticulture. You ready? Yes. Yes, I am. Let's do it. Designed by Jamie Stegmeier and Alan Stone and originally released in 2013 by Stegmeier Games, Viticulture is a worker placement game for two to six players that challenges each participant to allocate their workers efficiently in order to plant vineyards, harvest grapes, create wines, and to fill orders, scoring points in the process. The game ends when one player has reached 20 points, at which point that round is the final round, at the end of which whoever has the most points is the winner. To begin the game, each player is given basic workers and one grande worker, basically a larger meeple. Each player then collects their player board, which is a representation of their personal vineyard, with available spaces to place buildings, crush pads to hold your harvested grapes, and cellars to house wines. 
The main board is where the majority of gameplay will take place. Imagine that. Let's start with the cards on the top of the main board. There are vines that can be acquired to be planted in your fields and eventually harvested. There are orders, which basically show a recipe of wines that you'll need to fulfill in order to complete an order and score the points that it awards. And there are visitors, both summer and winter. We'll get there. On the left side of the board, we find the wake-up track. Now, this is where players select turn order. The starting player will choose a spot from 1 to 7 and place their rooster on that spot, say on the 3. The next player might play on a lower number because they want to go first, but they might opt for a later spot. Now, wait, why would I do that? Well, each spot has a bonus for selecting it, ranging from the 1 spot, which has no bonus but will guarantee placing first, all the way up to the 7 spot, which gives you an extra worker. Finally, the bulk of the main board has action selection spaces that you might expect in a worker placement game. Placing a worker in the Mercado spot, for example, will allow you to draw a vine card, while placing a worker in the Give a Tour of the Winery space will provide a few coins, Lyra in this case. As you might imagine, any given action space does not have enough spaces for everyone to get to do that specific action each round. Furthermore, what makes Viticulture click is that each game round is divided into two main parts, the summer and the winter, and the action spots on the main board vary based on which season you're in. The round starts with the summer season and summer worker placement. On your turn, you either place a worker until pass. If you pass, you're basically done for the summer, and your remaining workers are going to be available for the winter. This is a great time to point out what that Grande worker does. This extra-large meeple, which actually wasn't originally part of the first edition, allows you to take an action even if there are no available spaces for workers. The visitor cards, as mentioned earlier, can be summer or winter visitors. They're acquired between the summer and winter phases and can be played by placing a worker in an appropriate action space. I like to think of the summer workers as sort of the build-up cards, and the winter ones more like a payoff, but there is a lot of variety in each deck. Play will continue round after round with players planting vines, harvesting grapes, converting to wine, and filling orders until one player scores 20 points, and that round will be completed, and the high score wins the game. There is more to Viticulture than what I just outlined, but frankly not that much more. The buildings that you build will modify your gameplay in some way. The cottage, for example, allows you to draw extra visitors, while the windmill scores a point any time you plant a vine. Nevertheless, I hope this walkthrough gives you a sense of how things are going to go down when you get Viticulture to your table. Now, let's rejoin Scott and run this game through the ringer. It's time for the 8-bit breakdown of Viticulture. You find yourself in a rustic, pre-modern Tuscany, where you've inherited a meager vineyard. You'll have a few plots of land, an old crush pad, a tiny cellar, three workers, and the dream of owning the best winery in Italy. Oh, a little bit of flavor there. I like it. Hey, I do my best. I do my best. Well, Scott, today we're looking at Viticulture. This is one that I had the chance to learn from Ryan. Thanks, Ryan. And play several times. In fact, I'm playing it again tonight. I'm showing Jimmy how to play. He's got himself a hard copy, and he said, you know what, I'm not going to learn the rules. I'm going to have you teach me. And I thought, well, I do that to Ryan, so I, I guess uh, we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll pay it back. So, Ryan, I'm, I'm spreading your, your good teaching. Thank you. Viticulture, it's a, a fun game. One that I hadn't played for, I mean, forever, really started getting on board game arena it was on there a friend of mine caught me into playing it and boom i got kind of hooked on it there for a while well let's give this thing the 
bit breakdown, starting with bit number one, the art and components of viticulture. I enjoy this. I enjoy having just the little wooden meeples and things like that on the table. It's not flashy. You see exactly where you need to go. The board is beautiful with the artwork. The cards really look nice with everything. Everything is is realistically drawn and painted on the cards. Nothing special, but it fits what you need. You know, nothing special by today's standards. You said nothing flashy, and that's also by today's standards. Don't forget, we're leveling back. This was 2012. Yeah. This was actually pretty flashy for its time. By today's standards, yeah, it fits in. Well, maybe a good credit to it is for a 2012 game, it still holds up today. You have all of those wooden pieces for each of the different buildings that you can build, the glass beads for the grapes and the wines. I love it that whenever you put the glass bead over top of the red grape in your crush pad, it, you know how you put a clear glass bead over anything and it draws on that color. Mm-hmm. It looks like a little purple grape. Very cute. <laughs> Do you know the art on all of the visitors are original backers of the game? I could see that they were too obviously put their faces on that it couldn't just be like, oh, let's just draw this person here. That's a great touch. Yeah, when it was originally kickstarted, it had 942 backers. <laughs> and from among those backers, several of them had their faces put into the game. I thought that was kind of funny. By today's standards, like 942, and that thing funded. Those backers combined to pledge just short of $66,000, which wow. brought this game to life. Holy cow, that's that's amazing. 39 bucks to get your copy of Viticulture. It's expected to retail at $45. Mm. For $49, you got the expansion as well. You know what? I think we ought to take a look here sometime in a future episode as to the prices of Kickstarters and how they're blossoming. I don't know. That might be something to touch on. Dude, Scott, 180 bucks would get you six copies of this. Ideal for wineries, game stores, and gaming groups. That's 30 bucks a copy. Today yeah. you can't get a Kickstarter game for, boy, That I guess it was 10 years ago. Yeah. You know what I said for the art and components, Scott? One thing that I really liked about this is I could kind of relate it to early Magic the Gathering art versus today's Magic the Gathering art. I think some folks are going to look at Viticulture and think it looks kind of dull. Kind of like if you look like a magic, uh, if you look at a magic card from Mirage, you go, wow, that looks kind of dull and drab. Today, literally every piece of art in Magic and in many board games, literally everything is colorful and flashy and done on a computer and crystal clear and there's shiny spots and there's foreground and there's background. It's not bad. It's really good art. But when everything is epic, nothing's epic. There's kind of a charm to those old Magic cards that the new cards lack. Viticulture has that artwork and I think that it captures that charm. Let's move on to bit number two, the theme and immersion in Viticulture. Now, the theme here, obviously, is that you're managing a winery. You have visitors fulfilling orders. I thought this was pretty well implemented. I I say all the time, worker placement, it can be really difficult to get a theme through, but they do here. You have a clear early stage of the game where you're going to need more workers. You need to plant vines. And then you transition to this mid game where you're improving fields, you're harvesting them. And then finally, in the late game, converting the grapes to wines and filling orders. I don't know that I was immersed in the theme. Like, I'm not envisioning myself in the Italian countryside planting grapes with a big straw hat on. But, we, you know, like I said, we've said that before with worker placement. The theme here is strong enough, though, that I think that's okay to not be immersed. I don't need to be immersed in the theme, and I don't expect that this type of game is going to do that. I get immersed in the mechanics of the game, the interaction with the other players. My thought exactly, yes. 
you get into the whole idea of you need to prepare for the season. You need to get the things planted. You need to hire workers for everything. Then you get into the part where you're harvesting and you get everything done there. Then you make the wines. Completely agree with you. At no point in time did I feel like I had just bought this winery in Tuscany or anything like that at all. But still, <laughs> you have the idea that, yeah, I need to go point A to point B to point C in the most efficient way possible. But it, that's not a bad thing. I'm not saying that's a bad thing at all. The one thing that was great, I will have to say, is the visitor cards, how they are labeled and what type of abilities you get from them. That does really change things up. Yeah, there is a little bit of theme coming from those. Like the planter, for example, obviously is going to help you to plant vines. Like the auctioneer, the the buyer, they all they they have a thematic connection to who they are. Even the turn order track, the wake up row, they call oh, it yes, to get yes. started on the day. Whoever wakes up the earliest gets started first. And what do you know? The piece that you place on the wake up track, it's a rooster. Bit number three, complexity. How difficult is this game? With the complexity, I was a little taken aback by this because I jumped in with both feet right into it and didn't look at the rule book. I figured BGA will help me through it and it'll make it an enjoyable thing. But it didn't. I didn't realize that there were two seasons <laughs> until the person I was playing against, they're like, you know, you have a second season to harvest your grapes. I'm like, oh, you know, oh. You're playing all your workers. Yes. <laughs> but no, complexity, it's a nice meaty complexity to it. There's two more things that other games at the time didn't have. So you're like, oh, there's more to this. and made it a little bit more meaty to get into playing this game. It also put a lot of gameplay into the turn order track and the grande worker. Having a worker that you can place somewhere that's already taken adds a bit of depth, makes the game a little bit more complex. Not just not from a rule standpoint, like it's pretty easy to grasp what that means with the grande worker, but the amount of depth that comes up with, okay, I have one action that I can take in any given round that, I mean, typically you save it for last. You see where everybody else has played their stuff, but uh, ooh, that introduces a, a, a lot of skill to the game, I think. I don't think anyone's going to walk away from this though and go boy what the hell just happened uh, it's a step up from like a stone age or a lords of water deep two different sets of action spaces and if you can grasp that i don't think you can have a problem with viticulture yeah definitely not we go on to the rule book and as i stated i didn't look at the rule book i just jumped right in <laughs> thinking i can figure this game out i'm on a podcast i i know everything yeah no i don't Rulebook's pretty straightforward. There are various versions of Viticulture, the most popular arguably being the Essential Edition, which comes with some modifications and some of the modular expansions from the game's original expansion, Tuscany, incorporated into it. So I have the original game plus the Tuscany expansion with all of its modules, so I, I kind of have two different rulebooks for the game. The rules not only give you instructions for the game very clearly, they even have little fun facts throughout. They, they tell you some fun things about what you're doing and why you're doing it. And that transitions to the Tuscany rulebook as well, where you don't just get the instructions for the module, but you also get a little tidbit about that module and why it makes sense thematically mm. in a game about winemaking. Why, why do we have a mafia gun? What are the mamas and the papas? It tells you a little bit of the reason why they're in there. So let's talk learning curve. This one I was actually taught by Ryan. I've had this game for a, one time. Jeremy was like, hey, I hear good things about Viticulture. I want to play Viticulture. You played this game a long time ago. I'd never played it. I had it on my shelf for two years, three years. 
finally, <laughs> so it was on BGA as well. I was like, okay, who wants to teach me viticulture? And Ryan again rose to the challenge. So again, thank you, Ryan. And hopefully that we'll continue to hear that theme with our learning curve bits more and more. Uh, I've played a ton of worker placement games, many of which are more complex. So this was not a challenge to learn. If there was anything that could be convoluted, I think knowing what happens when the same number of grape would be placed, like I already have a three grape, what if I yield another one? Uh, it goes to a two. And how to make your blushes and sparkling wines. Again, it's not hard. It's just the only thing different if you're already familiar with worker placement games, aside from the, the summer and winter, but that's just not hard. <laughs> you, you take the first phase of the game and, okay, I'm going to place two of my three workers here and I'm going to save my other one for the next phase. And once everybody's made that decision, I'm going to save for the next phase, you place it over there. I thought this was pretty easy to learn. What about you? Learning curve. Once again, jumping in both feet. It was tough. But <laughs> once I learned the rules. I got to get you hooked up with Ryan. Yeah. Uh, once I got the rules figured out, it's not that tough to learn. Once you learn it, you get an idea of what you want to do. And then it really gets into the point of where do I want to put my workers? So it's not really a difficult game to learn. It's you're not you're not going to still have questions going into your second game. No. Well, let's talk replayability and variability. What do you think? I played it probably about five or six times. After that, I was kind of okay. I can put this away for a little while. I I don't need to play it again right now. Variability. It felt like I was getting a lot of the same cards a lot of the times whenever mm. I was playing this. I didn't think that it was that much of a big experience. You pretty much have a straight line of how you play and how you're going to win. There's yeah. not really that many branches off of this to make a really interesting game happen out of this and experience out of this. Once again, I'm not saying that that's bad. It's just that this is the type of game that it is. And I mean, it works for what it is. Yeah, the, the variables that you find in the cards are small enough that it doesn't affect your overall strategy. And I think that the overall strategy, literally every game, is going to be plant early, hopefully grab an extra worker. Mm -hmm. Mid-game, you hope to have acquired some good visitors, perhaps, and you start harvesting fields. Late game, you convert them to wines and you fill orders. I think also... This is a game that's going to have some solvability. Now, we haven't played. There's going to be folks out there that have played this 100 times. Oh, yeah. I haven't. But I do know that there's a huge benefit in constructing that cottage early. I feel like every oh, player yes. needs, to, needs to play that cottage to get two cards every turn. You're going to see seven or eight more visitors every game just because you did that on turn one. I think eventually building the yoke to double harvest is really strong. And in most games, that's going to be part of the strategy. There's not often going to be reason to deviate from that. Wouldn't you agree? Definitely on that. The differences in the cards are not really game-changing. The big thing, you brought up the cottage. There are small buildings that you can build during the game here that are very important. I like the Those would be the big things that really change the game for you big time. You're going to have a different game if you have opening vines in your hand or that you've drawn that don't require the trellis right. uh, and only need irrigation. If you if you start with vines that need both, well, you're going to build both right away. That's going to keep you from producing the cottage, and it's going to take you an extra turn to get those vines planted. You're behind the eight ball right, right off the bat. Mm -hmm. I think the redeeming factor for viticulture, though, is that the turn order is so 
tactically rich. So much so, Scott, that I'm pretty sure that that is where the bulk of the gameplay happens. Because so much of the game, the strategy feels kind of like you can put it on autopilot, the one area that you can't is determining player order. And I'll tell you what, that can throw a wrench in your autopilot. That definitely is. Whenever I would play it, that would be the part that I would spend the most time thinking about. Do I want an extra coin? Do I want an extra point? Do I want that extra worker just for this round? Do I want to go first and just skip all the bonuses you may get for taking a lower uh, thing there? That's a very, very good point, how important that turn order is to this game. Also, with the turn order, I tell you, player count is very, very important whenever you take that into factor. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it. It's a remarkably different game playing straight up one-on-one as opposed to, say, a five-player game. Oh, my, Because some of those spaces, and if you're second on the wake-up track, if you're second in a two-player game and the other person took the two, well, then you just hop right down to the seven. It doesn't matter if you take the three, four, five, six. You're going to go after them unless you take the one. Mm-hmm. If you're playing a five-player game and somebody starts on the two, whew, there's some risk taking the five. I don't know if I'm going to be fourth, fifth in turn order right. or if I'm going to be third. And that matters. Yeah, I guess a lot of variability based on the player count. Oh, yes. Well, let's move on to bit number seven, the downsides. What do you identify in Viticulture is something that you didn't care for as much. I think the big thing that was a downside is the cards. I still feel that it's very luck-driven. Yeah. If you don't get the cards that you need or a good hand of cards to play with, you're kind of stuck. You're going to be spending a lot more of your actions just setting up your plan instead of being able to enact your plan. So that's a a tough thing there because you need to get the grapes into your hand. You need to plant the grapes. If you keep drawing cards and you don't get what you need, or if that space has been taken, your game stalls. There aren't a whole lot of branching strategies here either. I started to get into that with the replayability and variability. There's there's not a lot of branching strategies on the strategy yeah. Vine? Uh, well, Vines yeah, on the strategy uh, see what tree? you did there. Anyway, it doesn't take many places to realize that there are certain things that are usually going to be optimal to do at certain times, and I don't think it's usually going to be wise to deviate from that strategy. You can get your engine up and running quickly with cheap vines, or you can draw vines that need the irrigation of the trellis, stalling you for a turn or two, as I said, and you end up having to sink your money into those structures while, mm-hmm. while other people are playing the vines in the cottage. I did not like that. I think you're right. There is definitely a difference in power level in the cards. We'll say that, no, I'm sure that they're balanced, but in a balanced game, if you could rank every card, one being it's garbage and five being it's absurdly good. A very balanced game. Everything would be just about a three, somewhere between, say, a 2.7 and a 3.3, mm-hmm. a very small range. I think here we have a range that's more like a two to four. Still balanced, but you know nothing's outright broken, nothing's outright garbage, but there are definitely cards that are better than others. And sometimes the timing of when you get them is uh, it's just paramount. Some cards in certain situations are so good that it makes it awfully difficult for anyone to catch you. Right. Most definitely. Now, it leads us up to the final bit. Was it fun and who's it for? I like worker placement games and I like Viticulture. I will caveat that statement, though. I think that without the turn order track, I wouldn't care much for Viticulture. I played the game at two, three, and four to this point, and I'll say that I have a lot more fun at the higher player counts. 
uh, especially when we played with four, when you have to factor in that there's two other people that might be bidding after you or three bidding after you for the turn order. I want to get it back to the table with five. It's not a bad game at two, but so much of the game for me revolves around that turn order track that it two people it becomes slightly simplified for the aforementioned reasons. Who's it for? It's a solid game. I don't think that there's many folks that are going to just not like it. It's a satisfying game. I think the X factor here is in the theme. Look, I like dueling wizards, Scott. I like going on missions. I like space battles. I like twilighting imperiuming. But that's usually a tough sell for someone like my wife. We all have gamers in our group that just don't care about, you know, well, what we'll call standard tropes for board game themes. Viticulture gives something charming, and it's not in too complex a package. I think that makes it a solid game, not only for your gamer group, but one that you can break out with your in-laws, your parents. You know, we have a new person coming tonight. Okay, let's let's bust out Viticulture. What do you think, Scott? Was it fun? And who do you think it's for? Yes, it it definitely is a fun game. I enjoy my time playing it. I know I sounded like I was poo-pooing on this game, but really I wasn't. It's a fun, solid game. I agree with you that it is more interesting whenever you play with more people. Mostly like the first four times I played with just two people. Fifth time, we added just one more person. And right away, my brain just like froze up and like had to switch gears. Because, yeah, that third person really does mess with you because you don't know where you're going to take your turn order at. So it's very, very important. Who's it for? Whenever you're talking here, I was really thinking about this. And my brother-in-law loves Ticket to Ride. Absolutely Mm -hmm. adores it. He takes Ticket to Ride with him everywhere to play. But this is one that I think would be a fun one to introduce him to. It's a worker placement game, but still there's little things added onto it to make it just a little bit more of a meaty game, but nothing yeah. that's going to be like, you're going to be uncomfortably full whenever you're done with that meal. This is a nice game here. Like you said, to introduce to your family, to new players that are coming into a game, they feel that they accomplish something playing this game. Scott, before we sign off from our Viticulture review, I did a little bit of research, and I came to find that the most expensive wine in the world at the moment is the Screaming Eagle Cabernet. Now, this originates from the Screaming Eagle Winery and Vineyards, which is located in California. The wine estate produces a limited amount of varietal wine, which is of top-notch quality and in high demand. And today, it's so much in demand that there's considered a cult wine, one of the factors that adds to its exorbitant price. This winery is located in Oakland, California, specifically north of Napa in the Napa Valley. It displays truly world-class qualities with its intense purity, soft texture, overall balance, and unique quality that make it stand out from its competition. Listeners and Scott alike, think in your brain how much does one bottle of Screaming Eagle Cabernet cost? Mm, I'm gonna throw out a guess of $65,000. $500,000. Oh, my God. (laughs) We need to start planting some grapes, Scott. Yeah, yeah. There's something to this winery bit. (laughs) Well, that was Viticulture from 2012 and revised a handful of times over the years. Scott, we've got a new segment, Lost Loot with Josh. Let's say we hear what he's got to say about a game outside of the top 1,000. Sounds awesome. Take it away, Josh.
Well, hello, my fellow adventurers, and welcome to Lost Loot, the part of the show where we look at any and all games ranked below 1,000 on BoardGameGeek.com. Today's Lost Loot comes in at a rank of 4,663. It is a 1-4 player game designed by Sarah Emil Reed with art by Derek Bacon and produced by Undyne Studios called Oaxaca, Crafts of a Culture. For those of you who don't know, Oaxaca is a state located in southwest Mexico and is sitting along the Pacific coast. Because of its proximity to the ocean, it is a massive tourist destination with hundreds and thousands of tourists coming each year. What do these tourists do? Well, Oaxaca hosts many sites to see such as the World Surfing Championship, the Church of Santo Domingo, the preserved ancient Mexican city of Monte Aban, petrified waterfalls, and colorful local and indigenous celebrations. These celebrations include the nationwide celebration of Dio de los Muertos and, unique to Oaxaca City, Gelaguetza, which is a celebration of indigenous cultures that are still thriving in Oaxaca. Oaxaca has the largest indigenous population of any state in Mexico, and because the people care so much about family and heritage, they use this time of year to come together and celebrate it with each other. The festival is full of dancing, festivities, food, and music that flows in a sea of colorful cloths and crafts. And the beauty of this celebration is exactly what attracted me to this game in the first place. In Oaxaca, city of crafts and culture, you represent a family of skilled Oaxacan handicraftsmen preparing to sell your artisan wares to eager tourists at a bustling large outdoor market, similar to the ones that happen at Gelaguetza. Oaxaca is a pool-building game, which means players start out with a limited selection of actions and as the game progresses, will acquire several more to use based on which cards the player chooses to craft. Over the course of three rounds, players will roll dice and take turns using dice to gather handicraft cards to place in their workshop, with the goal to craft them and place them in their market stalls to store points and build their pool of actions. Players can build this pool however they want, but the challenge and fun of Oaxaca comes in choosing which cards to craft. Each of the five handicrafts have a unique focus that players can take advantage of that will help them in various ways, whether it be scoring more points at the end of the game or by adding more actions to their pool. Players will also have access to tourist cards, which can provide once-per-round special abilities. They can also choose to scrap projects, save dice for the next round, and paradise used for different resources. At the end of three rounds, players will tally up the points on their handicrafts, and whoever has the highest score wins the game. Now why is this game a diamond in the rough? Why is that a hidden gem? Why is it lost loot? Well, I'll tell you. Just like the city of Oaxaca, this game is extremely colorful and bright, and I absolutely love it. The artwork in this game is absolutely fantastic. I love the cover of it, especially Derek Bacon does a great job capturing Oaxacan folk art in a very approachable way. You can see immediately the things you're crafting on the box cover, from textiles, jewelry, pottery, things of that nature. Awesome job. When I saw this on the shelf, I immediately grabbed it and tried to see what it was. If artwork is important to you in your games, this will definitely be something worth considering. I am a huge fan of small box games because the less space something takes on my shelf, the more games I can fit into it. It is a very small box that does not take up a lot of room, and there is a lot of game inside. Now there are a few things that some people might find an issue with, and that I know I did. The component quality is only okay. It is definitely meant for more function than flash pretty common in a smaller studio like this, so I can be pretty forgiving. And the rule book is a little wordy. It took me a little bit to kind of weave my way through what the game was actually trying to be. But once I did, I highly enjoyed it, and it's actually very simple. 
The graphic design is easy to understand. It doesn't take much to try to figure out what the cards are trying to tell you and what the different abilities are. Some of them use symbology and some of them simply just tell you, which I find very convenient and very charming. Now, as I've played this game a couple times, I've come to love and appreciate what it has to offer. Me and my wife, who is mainly my gaming partner, love games like Wingspan and Splendor, things that are very strategic, where you can plan out a long-term strategy for the most part, and you have an engine that slowly builds over time to what you want to do. The difference to me and my wife, though, however, is that I like having a little bit of luck in my games. I think a little bit of luck can go a long way in a gaming experience. I know some people may not think that's the best thing in an engine building game, but I personally think it adds a lot of spice to it. So this game, you know, there's the luck of the die roll, which gives you your resources, and also you're drawing your resources from a deck that is face down, so you don't know exactly what you're going to get. You draw two cards and you pick one. And I personally love that aspect of a game where you don't know what you're going to do. You have a general idea of what you're going to be getting. You're going to be getting some maybe some cards that can manipulate your dice or give you end of game scoring bonuses. But you don't know exactly what it's going to get and sometimes it's not what you're expecting. But adjusting to that tactically is my kind of game. I love games that challenge you tactically. I'm not really a strategic game player at all. I like thinking in the moment and thinking on my feet. And this game gives me that really in leaps and bounds. Now, where this game really elevates itself for me is when you add an expansion to the game that actually comes with it called the Taste of Oaxaca. It is a sixth deck of cards and a sixth resource you can use to help build your, your market stall. And it all focuses on cuisine. What this extra deck of cards does is provide a resource for you to get extra actions and points into your market stall rather quickly. Lots of the other resources and handicrafts provide quite a commitment to actually use and craft, whereas these cuisine cards do not. And really why I liked it is because the game felt like kind of a slog where you were just using the first round just to get some sort of action that you can use for the next round and by that time the game is halfway over. Whereas in these cards can immediately go into your mark stall sometimes and you can start using actions then and there. What makes this interesting and awesome for me is that it's very snappy. It feels very snappy and very tactical which I think if you use this game and go at this game in a tactical way it will really shine for you. Games like Splendor and Wingspan, which take a long time to build, it does not until the very end where your engine really starts working. This engine can start working almost immediately, which to me is very satisfying. If you're a fan of games that are almost immediately satisfying and come at a quick pace, this might be for you. With no shortage of replayability, this game also provides a solo mode and an advanced edition, as well as a semi-cooperative variant that I have yet to play, but look forward to trying in the near future. To sum it all up, Oaxaca Craftsman Culture is a beautiful, beautiful game that provides high replayability and great tactical gameplay. Well, that's going to do it for today's episode of Lost Loot. I'm going to throw it back to you, Patrick and Scott. And remember, adventurers, if you find yourself wandering the crooks and crannies of your friendly local game store, keep your eyes out. You never know when you might find some lost loot. Yes, yeah, Scott, I didn't mean to deviate from the level back concept. Oaxaca is a relatively new game. This one coming out in 2018. Oaxaca, Crafts of a Culture. Listeners, this is O-A-X-A-C-A. O-A-X-A-C-A, Oaxaca. I tried looking this thing up on Board Game Geek after listening to Josh's submission for 20 minutes before I gave up. I was like, okay, I'm just going to email Josh and say, hey, how do you spell this thing? <laughs> and you know what? It was in the title of the email that he originally sent me. <laughs> 
This looks good though. I'm looking at the components. I'm looking at the bits, the colors, the artwork on BGG. It's a uh, relatively quick play time, relatively lightweight. I'd be willing to give this one a try. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's one of those things where you don't realize how many games are out there and mm-hmm. there's no way to know every game that's being played or that's been released. So it's great. I mean, I really appreciate it. Thank you, Josh, for bringing these type of games to the forefront so that we can learn about these things and give them a try. Yeah, definitely looking forward to the next Lost Loot. That was awesome. Oaxaca, Crafts of a Culture. Thank you, Josh. Uh, uh, Patrick. Um, yes, sir. Yeah, the producer's waving his hands wildly at me. We got to pay some more bills. Play oh, that commercial. Let's do it. Prepare thyself well, Dragon Warrior. Thy most challenging quest ever awaits. Go with speed, but go with patience. Seek out an arsenal, a dragon scale, a torch, and magic herbs. Use wisdom and cunning to choose thy commands, for the Dragon Lord is a fierce rival. Horrible and treacherous minions all guard the evil one's island castle. Are they ready, young one? Yes, King Lauren. And so begins a new epic, Dragon Warrior. Nintendo, now you're playing with power. Scott, you ever play Dragon Warrior? I think I may have. I, I'm horrible with video games because whenever a new one comes out, I usually buy the one that was right before it. Yeah, I kind of do the same thing. Fortunately, when the next new game comes out, you can buy Dragon Warrior for re- your regular Nintendo. Woohoo! <laughs> They have a phone app version of this. I was looking on just for like board games to download, and I think I came across Dragon Quest. It had a slightly different name. And I was like, oh, this sounds interesting. So I started playing it, and I was like, this is Dragon Warrior <laughs> with slightly different music and very, very slightly modified graphics. But, man, I remember playing We would rent it from the videos – well, the movie store. You'd go into your Blockbuster or whatever, and they would always have that video game section. So you'd rent Dragon Warrior and play it for hours and hours over the weekend, save your game, and then it had to go back to the video store. Mm-hmm. Next Friday, you'd go back to the video store, you'd rent it, and you would hold your breath because you'd insert that cartridge and you'd be like, man, it better still have my character. I put so much... <laughs> oh, thank God. We did that with Sim City too. You'd make your city, and it's like... I have a metropolis. I'm going for a megalopolis. If it's not there, it's gone. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) The worries that we had back then that the kids don't have today. They they have no (laughs) idea how easy they got it. Scott, we've got adventures on the horizon. Let's cue the music. Cue the music. Patrick. You're the yes, one sir. that's doing all the things that are on the horizon. My weekends are tied up now, so I haven't been able to do anything much. So I see that on the notes here, you have treasure cats and reinforcements. Now, treasure cats, I have to say, isn't from the 90s. I can guarantee that. <laughs> because if it was, it would be cats with a K. <laughs> and spelled with a Z at the end. Yes. And all in neon uh, neon letters. Now, let's start with treasure. We want to start with treasure cats? Sounds good. Okay, Adventures on the Horizon. Again, breaking from the level back theme. These are games upcoming on Kickstarters. Treasure Cats specifically will be live as of September 21st. This is designed by Nathan Wool of Glass Shoe Games. In a game of Treasure Cats, you take on the role of a cat, imagine that, who's looking for items, treasures, on the farm and in the junkyard. And the winner is whoever finds and collects the most valuable stuff. 
This game revolves around a small deck of cards that's going to be used basically every round. So everybody's going to sit around the table and everyone's going to be dealt two of these cards from this little deck and three of the remaining cards that are left in the deck go in the middle of the table, basically just for information purposes. So you're going to have three phases in the game. First, everybody's going to look at their two cards and they're going to choose a treasure card and play it. Every card is a treasure card slash location. Top half has the treasure, bottom half has the location. So you're going to pick one to play as your treasure or location card. You set it down in front of you, and this is pretty neat. You're going to take the second card, and you're going to cover either the top half, which is the treasure portion, so you're only showing your location, or you're going to cover the bottom half, only showing the treasure card. The top half being a treasure, it's typically going to contain an ability where, as I said, the bottom is the location. In this case, it's always going to be the junkyard or the farm. The second phase is an action phase. Some of the cards played will have their location covered, thus showing the top action half of the card. Here's where you're going to carry out those actions in turn order, and that can be anything ranging from guessing someone else's location, or having another player discard their card, or maybe even increasing the value if you're the only player who revealed that specific treasure. Third phase is scoring. So everyone's going to remove that cover-up card, revealing their entire card. Then some slow actions are going to be resolved. Whenever I said, oh, everybody goes around resolving their action, that's if it has an A next to it. If it has a P, this is where that gets resolved. How do we score? Easy. Every player that played a junkyard card will look at the value in the top left of their card, and they're going to tally it together. So like three junkyards were in play with values 1, 1, and 2. So there's a total value of 4 for all the junkyards combined. The farm, on the other hand, only had two cards with its location down, valued 1 and 2. So a total of 3. So everyone with the junkyard location, junkyard beat the farm 4 to 3, will score 1 point. So you're adding up the values of every junkyard card versus every farm card, and whichever one has the higher value, everybody who picked that location gets one point. Hmm. And then you're going to shuffle up the deck, you're going to deal out two cards to everybody, and you start round two. First person to get five points is declared the winner. I'm looking at a picture here. The idea of a cat wearing a dog mask to get into the junkyard, I think, is brilliant. <laughs> Um, they do have some really cute art. It does look like a fun little game. Once again, it's just one of those nice filler games. We definitely ought to do something like our top five filler games or something here. We've uh, had a lot of good ones, and a lot of that comes from that open call out to designers. Hey, we're having a meetup yeah. if you want to send us a game. Treasure Cats was in that lot. Yeah, and it's a, a lot of times, I mean, do you want a big experience to play a game, or do you want to have a lot of smaller experiences with a mm -hmm. bunch of people? So it looks like a lot of fun there. I'm, I'm anxious to see how this does. Now, is it an easy game to teach? It seems like it would be kind of simple. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. It's very easy to teach. Uh, what with two cards, it's an easy game to teach and play, but it doesn't lack depth. Make no mistake, this has a lot of depth in that you have to weigh your options of the actions that you have available and their speed, that A or the P. Is this a fast action or a slow action? As well, you might have to deduce what someone else is doing with their cards. So if you reveal only the location of your card, you're kind of allied with others at the table that have that same location because you want that to win. If you have a way to get rid of somebody's card, if I played a junkyard, for example, and the action half that's covered uh, gets rid of somebody else's card. Well, I'm not going to get rid of somebody else who has the junkyard showing because I need the junkyard to get pumped up. That's what my location is. Even if my bottom half is covered, they don't know that it's a junkyard, but I do. 
Mm. And I want other junkyards to stay. So I might look around the table and people that covered the top half of their card, thus hiding their action. It's a really good action. They don't want you to know what it is. (laughs) Well, I'm not going to do anything to him because he's got the junkyard showing too. And I want that to win. You showed the farm. So you're being nice to people with the farm. This game plays, uh, geez, up to nine? Yeah, yeah. Nine players. So you can imagine how when you get that many cards, it's like, hey, how many farms do we have out? You start to, to really start to form these little clicks and then there's the missed guesses like okay i know i'm junkyard i can only see his action it's a really powerful one i'm gonna get rid of his card oh no he was junkyard too i really could have used that (laughs) and we ended up missing the point that round by one we got outscored by the by the farm we had a a lot of fun with this one that's that's great i mean it those types of games that you have a lot of fun with a lot of interaction with the other players that sounds awesome now when's the kickstarter again September 21st, Glass Shoe Games, Treasure Cats. Awesome. I know you had another one here, Reinforcements. Reinforce? <laughs> Wait a minute. You're supposed to Reinforcements. Oh, oh, it has an exclamation point at the end. I'm sorry. Reinforcements. I don't think it does. <laughs> Reinforcements. This is published by Peasant Mob, designed by Jack Collins, Brennan Collins, Nick Brown. It's a two to four player game that plays in about a half an hour to an hour. And this one is going to be live on Kickstarter October 4th. Reinforcements is a game, for lack of a better way to put it, it's inspired by a good old fashioned 52 card deck, War. Mm. Don't you mm, like you're getting excited? <laughs> I just said it's inspired by War. <laughs> hey. Whenever I was a kid, that kept me entertained for a long time. Okay, well, don't go running for the hills. I promise it's just inspired by war. So follow along with me, Scott, because this game actually, this one gripped me a lot. The theme here is that you're playing an area that represents your kingdom. You'll be using cards to strengthen your own kingdom, and you'll be using them to attempt to demolish everyone else's. At the start of the game, everyone's going to be dealt five cards. Again, this has a community deck, much like Treasure Cats did, but this one is a a much bigger deck. Everyone gets five cards, and you get to choose to play three of them face down next to each other as the bottom rung of three different stacks that comprise your kingdom. They kept referring to them as stacks. I like to think of it as like towers of a castle. Anyway, the cards in the deck each have a number, ranging from one to seven, and that's basically their power level, as well as a color, red, green, or blue. Three different colors, so one to seven, three suits. On your turn, you're going to start by choosing either attack, defend, or discard based on the color of the card that you're going to play. Attack means you're going to use a card against somebody else's stack. You show your card and its power compared with the opponent's top card of their stack. The attacking card will always die, but the defender dies as well so long as its power is smaller. So if I played a 7 and you flip up your top card and it's, say, a 3, well, I killed your card. Furthermore, the attacker's damage does have, I think they call it bleed over, but think like trample and magic. My 7 versus your 3, well, I still have 4 more damage that's going to carry over to your next defender in that stack until all 7 damage has been dealt. So far, so good? So far, so good. Now, cards played in the stacks are played face down. So when you're attacking, you kind of have to remember where those big numbers are. I don't get to see your card as it goes down, but I might play a three and you flip your top card and it's a six and I go, oh crap. And then you just put that card face down again. So that's the attack option. Next up, you have the option to defend, and this is simply playing a card from your hand face down on top of one of your stacks. Now, it has to be the same color as that stack. You're allowed to look at your own. So my three stacks that I started the game with, I'll look at this one. Okay, I put a green five here. I have to put a green card on top of that. Yeah, you know what? I'm going to opt to defend, and I'll place my card face down at the top of that stack. 
You can have as many as three cards in a stack and a maximum of five stacks, but there's a couple of rules here as well. Cards played into a stack are played face down until the third card, each stack has a maximum of three, is played, at which point you're going to flip all three of those cards in the stack face up, so now it becomes public information. Then you draw the next card from the main deck, and you can play any card from your hand face down to start a new stack. So far, so good. So that's how you're going to actually get a fourth and a fifth, because you're allowed to have up to five. Right. This is where you can unlock a kingdom ability based on the color of the stack that you just revealed. So, for example, if you just played your third red card in a stack, so you had to flip it up and it's revealed, now you unlock the red ability, which in this case is you can use cards instead of from your hand, you can use cards from one of your stacks to attack someone else. So if you had a very defensive stack with, say, a red six, you can use that instead to attack someone if you see that they've got a two, a two, and a two at the top of one of those. So you can go bam, bam, bam because of that bleed over damage. Mm -hmm. It, I know it starts to get convoluted. There's a lot of numbers I'm talking here, but uh, <laughs> it's a lot of fun whenever you start getting to start taking that hidden information, making it public, and then capitalize on it. Um, that sounds fun. It, it, you have the secret stuff and you flip it over because you never know what's going to happen. We only went through two. There's a third action. Yes. The last option is you can just discard cards from your hand to draw replacements at the start of your next turn. It's not fancy. It's not pretty. <laughs> Frankly, it's not exciting. But strategically, there's times where you just have to do it. So now we know the actions. We know the game. It's pretty solid as is, but they took an extra step with strategy, however, by introducing what they call totems into the game. So you have your central deck from which everybody's going to be drawing from, except for four cards. This is simple, but I love it. You know how when you complete a stack of three cards, you flip them up and you get a kingdom ability? Mm-hmm. Well, what if you flip up another stack that is also the same color? So in my example earlier, I flipped up my three cards and they're all red. What if I complete a second stack and they're all red? I get a totem card. Mm. Now, there's only one for each color, so it can become a race to get the totems, especially when that hidden information becomes public. Okay, I have a red stack. So does Brendan. Oh, I got to finish my other one. They're very strong and flavorful. We've been using red for our example, so let's stick with it. The red totem is the Berserker Worm card. You take it from the, the pile of four that are separated. What does it do? It straight up lets you kill any three cards on the table. You lose that card. You lose that card and that one. You also have assassins and mages in the deck. I think there's three of each. The assassins are going to let you kill any card in anybody's stack. They only have a two power, so you're typically not going to be playing them for defense, but they'll let you kill any card anywhere in the stack instead of having to go with the first thing. And the mage will auto-kill the top two cards of any stack. So if somebody's playing big, big defense and they've got a six and a five at the top of their green stack, well, that's going to be hard to get through until somebody hits a mage. Okay, I'll play this mage. You're essentially dealing 11 with the mage. Oh. Lastly, you have these peasant cards. And if you're ever holding five of them, they're just a one value card, nothing special. But if you're ever holding five, and you take that discard action, you say, I'm, I'm going to discard to draw new cards. Hey, look, I discarded five peasants. You straight up nuke an entire stack. Three cards out of someone's stack. <laughs> Thematically, I think what they're shooting for is like a peasant revolt. Right, right. It seems like whenever you get into it, it's going to be a lot of fun. Oh, my goodness. Now, what if there's a tie? What if there's like two fives out at the same time? Oh, I almost forgot. Scott, this is, depending on who you talk to, this is the best or the silliest part. If you have a tie, you played your five against my five. That's mm -hmm. what you're asking. We both... 
shout reinforcements. And this is one of those rule books that says shout it. You get reinforcements. <laughs> and then you each flip up the top card from the deck to basically just play war. That's the simple resolution. Right, Do right. you need to shout reinforcements? No. <laughs> Did we in our playthrough? Absolutely. Oh, yes. <laughs> so there's a playful element here. The game doesn't take it itself too seriously, but it is a game that's all about clashing with each other, racing grab totems. There is take that against each other. It's an easy rule set that gives us a really solid game. With uh, all these little battles going on, does this take up a lot of space on a table, or is it something that you can play anywhere? I More than you would think, because you have three stacks, you have three rows of cards, sometimes that turns into four and into five, and if you've got five people playing, yeah, it's, mm. it's not a table hog, but it's not like small, compact card game either. Right. Now... It sounds like you had fun, but where would this fall into as far as what type of gamers would like this? Oh, geez. Well, I think it's a solid two-player game, be it a little more dependent on the assassins and the mages being distributed evenly when there's two. But, you know, because if somebody gets three or four of them, they're likely just going to win. But for a larger group, it plays just as well. And it's kind of like multiplayer magic in that you can kind of gang up on someone, like the players have to self-balance a little bit. We actually tried it with a variant of attacking the player on your right. So you're always defending mm. from your left and always attacking on your right. We used to do that in magic too sometimes, and that worked out really well. Uh, this is a game for those who are probably a tad newer to the hobby or for those who are most comfortable with medium light games that have a bit of a luck of the draw incorporated. And I'll tell you what, Scott, that Kickstarter... 15 bucks. They're talking 15 bucks to get this game. That sounds awesome. And that's going to be when? That's going to be live on Kickstarter on October 4th. Reinforcements. Fantastic. Get on over there. Yeah, it sounds awesome. Well, Patrick, it's come that time that we had... Ah! There's that music. (laughs) Uh, uh, I wasn't expecting that. (laughs) Speaking of not expecting, I was not expecting you to... That is going to pop like crazy. (laughs) Yeah, Scott, before we sign off today, it's a quick one for the top 100 because there's no changes in the top 10, no debuts in the top 100. I did want to follow up with Dune Imperium is up to number 30, Lost Ruins of Arnak up to number 50. That's basically it for the changes, but how about this? Gloomhaven is 20 weeks away from passing Puerto Rico as the game with the second largest number of weeks at number one. So right now, the, the most weeks at number one by any game is Twilight Struggle. Then Puerto Rico, Gloomhaven needs 20 more weeks at number one to pass Puerto Rico. I don't see anything happening to really dethrone that unless there's something really major that comes out at Gen Con or Origins here in the next couple weeks. It still has a year after that before it passes Twilight Struggle. Wow. It's got like 70 weeks from now to pass Twilight Struggle. Testament to the old games and appropriate for our level back episode. Now you can go ahead and segue us into our, our, yeah, do your thing. All right. I'll, I'll do the words. It's come to that time ending up the show. And we always like to take a moment and look back and see how we leveled up in real life. So Patrick, how did you level up this past week? Scott, we used to have a pretty active board game trading group on Facebook for the Pittsburgh area that the moderators kind of went dark. So my friends Nikki and Jimmy took it over and they started a weekly contest where everyone could answer a question and the the winner, like the, whoever posted that contest, mm-hmm. whoever posted it's going to pick a winner and they're going to send them a game. And whoever that winner was, they post next week's 
quick question. Oh. Yeah, not a contest, just whoever answers this. And the obligation is, you know, if you answer the question, you could win the prize. But the obligation is you then have to sponsor next week's giveaway and you have to come up with a question for everybody to answer. So kind of simple fun. Um, I won the drawing for, oh. for a board game. And you know what? I think they said like, you know, like $30 is what we're thinking. This guy, Jeff, sent me Monasterium. A solid Euro game. I hadn't even heard of it. He, he asked for my BGG list. He wanted to see, okay, what kind of games is Pat interested in? Mm-hmm. And he sent me Monasterium. And I have it set up on the table to learn. I think we're going to get that into an episode here within the next two. But not just that. He said, I was listening to your episode, and I know that you guys like Orleone. He sent me the geek up bits for my oh, copy wow. of Orleone. So I'm no longer uh, cardboard bits. I got the big chunky plastic bits. That's fantastic. Talk about uh, uh, generosity from Jeff. Jeff, thank you very much. That is my level up for this go round. How about you, Scott? Well, my level up, which a lot of things are going to be things that happened with the Renaissance Festival. We had uh, a dear friend of ours uh, lose his battle with cancer earlier this year. It was rough to, to lose him. And his wife came out. And what we do is we try and we do knighting ceremonies for kids and stuff like that. We call them sir or dame, different things like that. Well, she came out because I had knighted Joe at the funeral home posthumously. And she wanted to be knighted as well. So she came out. You could tell she was having a hard time seeing a lot of friends, a lot of family. And we presented her with two framed certificates for both he and her showing that they had been knighted. And then later on, they did a thing where a bunch of the people pitched in money and they got her one of those small plots of land in Scotland. So she's actually a lady in Scotland. And it was just a remarkable time to be with people that care about each other so much a touching moment and it was really a great way of getting people together and everything it it was it was a wonderful day for that that sounds wonderful Mm -hmm. well i think that's just about going to do it for us adventures if you haven't listened to the quests and canons episode released last week make sure you go back and give that a listen we have another side quest we're keeping really busy next week you can hear clemens luger talk about magical friends and how to summon them Quick spoiler, this may be my favorite game that we've done a side quest for so far. Yeah, there's a lot to this game, and it's going to be a good one. I'll see you next time, Scott. Hey, sounds like a plan. Talk to you you later. Thank you so much for joining this adventure of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. We encourage all adventurers to check out our website at levelupgamepodcast.com. There you can submit your thoughts and audio to be used in a future episode. Please consider rating us on iTunes. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and join the Board Game Geek Guild, Guild 3722. Music for the podcast provided by Adam Haynes. Learn more at adamhainesmusic.com. And remember, you can spend another night on the sofa, or you can get some friends together, get some adventures on the table, and level up.